You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's July 8th. Two weeks ago, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade ending the constitutional right to an abortion and allowing states to prohibit the procedure. Since the decision, abortion bans have already taken effect in at least nine states. Before the ruling, Rand's Kyle Ann Hunter wrote about how overturning Roe could affect women in the U.S. military. To start, women who are stationed in states that have already banned abortion, or are poised to do so, will face sharp reductions in their health care options. Of course, this is also true for civilian women, but restrictions may have an outsized effect on those in the military. Evidence suggests that women who serve are more likely to experience an unintended pregnancy, miscarriage, or ectopic pregnancy than their civilian counterparts. They're also more likely to experience sexual assault and intimate partner violence factors that increase the risk of unintended pregnancy. Losing access to safe and legal abortions may also exacerbate the negative experiences that women in the military often describe, Hunter says. For example, the need to travel out of state for an abortion could increase fears among service women about the negative stigma associated with pregnancy. It could also intensify concerns about privacy. Abiding by new policies related to abortion could reinforce harmful gender stereotypes in the ranks, too. For instance, women who have to take time away from their units and from physical training to travel for an abortion and then recover from the procedure could be seen as a distraction in their units. Or others could view these women as shirking their duties. Misinformation is another potential issue. We'll get into how this might affect civilian women momentarily, but for military women specifically, misinformation about Pentagon policies could create false impressions about the healthcare options that are available to them. Overall, the repeal of Roe will likely add more stress and barriers to what is already a difficult process for service women. As Hunter concludes, quote, the Defense Department will need to respond to ensure that women have access to the full range of healthcare. How that response is communicated is crucial, leaving no room for misinterpretation that could heighten existing stereotypes and tensions. Another RAND researcher, Julia Rollison, wrote about the broader problem of misinformation about abortion and what can be done to address it. Even before the Supreme Court ruling, the abortion issue was already a, quote, minefield of medical misinformation, Rollison says. And in some cases, disinformation is being spread deliberately. Here's an example that highlights both types of bad information. Some public health departments list abortion resources on their websites. They could unknowingly or knowingly link to deceptive organizations, such as anti-abortion organizations that mimic clinics, but provide limited, biased, or unscientific health information. In other cases, state legislators themselves have pushed medical misinformation about abortion. Rollison says that the reversal of Roe v. Wade may have only made the spread of bad information worse by creating a chaotic information environment for patients and providers. 
The decision has forced individuals to very quickly understand a variety of regulations that can differ from state to state, and that may influence if, how, when, and where they can obtain an abortion. As the debate over abortion rights moves to the states, the struggle for information influence will likely intensify. Rollison outlines four ways that key stakeholders could help. First, states could make countering misinformation part of their plans to help ensure access to reproductive health care. Second, reproductive health organizations that track state and federal policies and support community education about abortion could scale up their work, but they will likely need more funding to do so. Third, technology companies could proactively monitor and remove false or misleading medical claims about abortion. They can also take steps to protect the privacy of people who seek abortion information online. Fourth and finally, large employers and health insurers could help counter misinformation by being transparent about abortion benefits and coverage policies for employees. Efforts like these could go a long way to stopping the spread of misinformation and disinformation about abortions. If left unchecked, Rollison says, misinformation could become a major barrier to individuals trying to navigate their way to safe, legal, and quality reproductive care. Let's stay with the topic of disinformation, but shift gears a bit. You may have heard of, or maybe even seen, a deepfake. Highly realistic, synthetically altered videos in which the face or body that's being depicted has been modified to appear as someone or something else. Well-crafted deepfakes require high-end computing resources, such as artificial intelligence modeling, as well as time, money, and skill. What are the risks associated with deepfakes? The answer is limited only by one's imagination, writes Rand's Todd Helmus in a new paper. As a society, we place great trust in video footage. And with the unlimited number of applications for video, it's not difficult to imagine the many ways that deepfakes could be used or weaponized by bad actors. For example, on the eve of a closely contested election, a video could surface that appears to show a candidate making a controversial statement or engaging in scandalous behavior. Such a video could sway the outcome of the election. Deepfakes could also exacerbate social divisions, with content designed to push already polarized Americans further apart. Another risk? The proliferation of deepfakes could lead to declining trust in prominent news institutions by sowing mistrust in legitimate forms of information. These are just a few examples of the serious risks posed by deepfakes. But Helmus also offers recommendations to mitigate these threats. For example, the U.S. government, the research community, social media platforms, and other private stakeholders should continue to invest in enhancing technology that detects deepfakes. Helmus also emphasizes the importance of efforts that support media literacy and the development of open-source intelligence tools to help journalists, media organizations, and other non-technical experts detect and conduct research on deepfake content. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and China's implicit support for it has intensified the strategic competition that now defines U.S. national security policy. And as a result, many American officials and analysts have called for the U.S. to enhance its military capabilities, harden its defenses, and invest in key technologies. 
But according to Rand's Michael Mazar, author of a new Rand report, acquiring superior technological or military capabilities may not determine whether the U.S. prevails in this strategic competition. In fact, great powers can make many mistakes, lose wars, lose allies, even lose their military edge, and still triumph in long-term contests. So what does determine whether nations rise or fall, succeed or fail, enjoy stability or descend into chaos? According to Mazar, it is not military or economic might that makes the crucial difference. Rather, it's the fundamental qualities of a society— the characteristics of a nation that generate economic productivity, technological innovation, social cohesion, and national will. In short, it's who we are as a people and what we value. In the report, Mazar identifies seven key characteristics that he calls the building blocks of international power. They are national ambition and will, unified national identity, shared opportunity, an active state, effective institutions, a learning and adapting society, and competitive diversity and pluralism. The balance of these characteristics is important. Too much national ambition, for instance, can lead to overreach, imperiling a country that overcommits itself. But countries with too little ambition, diversity, or willingness to learn and adapt risk starting a negative cycle that can spiral into national decline. As for the U.S., Mazar says that the country finds itself deficient in many of these areas, which powered America's rise in the last century. And if the U.S. is to regain its competitive advantage, it will have to do more than just outspend its rivals on defense or advanced military technologies. It will have to nurture the qualities that make great powers dynamic, innovative, and adaptive. But this leads to an important question— Does America have the creative determination, national solidarity, and political resolve to meet such a challenge? Only time will tell. Next week, a new National Mental Health Emergency Hotline, 988, will launch. The need for this service is clear. Someone dies from suicide in the U.S. about every 11 minutes. But recent RAND research has shown that mental health program directors across the country don't feel prepared for the 988 rollout. In a national survey conducted this spring, a majority of these program directors said that they didn't have the staffing, financing, or infrastructure needed for the launch. And most had not been involved in developing a strategic plan or budget for setting up a 988 system. The funding shortages shouldn't come as a shock, our researchers say. The lack of mental health infrastructure and providers in the U.S. has for decades contributed to high rates of homelessness and incarceration among people with mental health conditions. This lack of investment has also contributed to rising deaths from suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol poisoning. Without rapid reforms to support mental health care in general, and 988 in particular, dialing the new hotline in many parts of the country would force people to endure long wait times. They might also end up getting connected to someone unfamiliar with nearby services, or directed to overwhelmed hospitals that can't admit new psychiatric patients. Another challenge is educating the public about 988 and destigmatizing its use. Schools will play a large role. 
In fact, at least 20 states in Washington, D.C. already include mental health in their curricula. Normalizing use of 988 among students can introduce young people to a service they or their loved ones may continue to need in adulthood. And outside of the classroom, public information campaigns can help spread the word about the hotline. While the obstacles are significant, next week's launch is an opportunity to overhaul not just the phone number that people call in a mental health emergency, but also what happens after 988 gets dialed. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on today's episode, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We'll see you next week.